still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. The best is yet to come, amen? Well, we're so honored to be here, and, you know, Kevin and I both have day jobs. I work full-time in radio, and Kev is a commercial construction manager, so he, bid, he builds things in proportion to his size. I will just tell you, when you meet him, he's a big guy. He builds, like, stadiums and hospitals, and um, then he goes to women's events. So um, <laughs> he's been to more women's events than any woman I've ever met. So I think, please shake his hand, give him a hug or something. But we, after our you know, day job is over and we're heading out to an event, we are packing up books, we're getting slides ready. And for some reason, we were in that game face mode, getting ready for this event, not even thinking that we would see friends. I don't know why, but all of a sudden we started getting texts from friends, gonna be there, we're gonna be there. And I'm like, wait, what, what, what? So, I mean, it's just like, again, we were just in that mode of getting ready for an event and all of a sudden our hearts just leapt within us because we are home, we are with our people. So thank you, Mark, for that introduction and very expectant that God's gonna move mightily in our midst. So today, this morning's message is You Are Called. That's the title. Based on my book, Your Beautiful Purpose. And this message is for men and women, young and old. If you have breath in your lungs, you've got purpose for your steps. And so often, the things that get in the way of our sense of purpose is we get battered enough by life that we quit hoping. You know, we, we quit dreaming. And yet, we're never, ever too young or too old to dream with God, right? God always has a next place of promise for us. And I've realized that people tend to fall into one of three categories when it comes to sense of purpose. One is you maybe have a real passion and a sense of purpose, but you've hit one obstacle after the next, and so you feel utterly convinced you're delusional, you know, or that you're a have-not, that everybody else has a purpose but you. Another category of people are those who, um, you've just been so battered by life, you've stopped hoping, you've stopped dreaming, like the light has gone out of your eyes, and you really do believe that a, a purpose that's fulfilling is for everybody but you. And that's not true, but it's easy to feel that way when you've been battered. And the third category is often those who are introverts. I'm an introvert. I, I could be a monk. 
I thrive on solitude. I love solitude. Uh, but we tend to be like, you know, in, in the ways of purpose, doing the impossible. I'm good. <laughs> I'll just have my time with Jesus. I'm good. But the Lord calls all of us to go from strength to strength, glory to glory, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. And the call of God will look different on each of us, but we all have a call. And we are all ambassadors. And there's a purpose for each of us until he returns. Amen? Hey, I forgot to tell you I love it when you talk back to me. So now's your chance. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this camp. When Kevin and I drove onto this campus, we just instantly felt the presence of God. And as Mark said, that this, we stand on the shoulders of so many faithful people who had vision for future generations, who gave blood, sweat, tears, Lord God, who sowed in their time and their finances and their talents so that men and women could be saved, so that children could find their purpose, Lord God, so that little ones could have a destiny. And so we just speak Jesus over this place, Lord God. And I pray for a supernatural debt payoff, Lord God, for this new building. I pray there would be no loan needed. Lord God, I've heard it said that if it's God's will, it's God's bill. And so we just pray, pour out your provision and pay for that thing. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room, oh God, that we would have a sense of attentiveness to your presence this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to do your will. And Jesus, I confess I can do nothing or say nothing unless you breathe life in and through me. So would you do that? I pray you call out destinies this morning, mobilize purposes. Just get the sense there's some in this room that you once had a dream, but then life happened and you put it on the back burner. And I just get a sense God was saying, put it to the front of your mind again. Start praying into it again. Awaken us, God. Energize us. Empower us, Lord God, to get a vision for our next place of promise. In Jesus' name, amen. If we were to line 10 of you up on the stage and Jesus were to walk in the room and tell you what your purpose is, the purpose would be as unique as you are. And it's not one-faceted, it's multifaceted based on your time, your treasure, your talents, your experiences, your heartbreaks, your convictions. But there are, there are four things that are uh, universal for the believer when it comes to our purpose. We have all these things in common, they're foundational to our purpose. The first one is to be much with God. The foundational purpose for you as you walk with God is to walk intimately with God, so much so it is the most important thing about you, that your fellowship with him is the most important thing about you. I often say any gift from his hand pales in comparison to the treasure of knowing his heart. And so often what gets in the way of us fulfilling the high call of God on our lives is either self-ambition or self-preservation. We either want to get ahead of God because he's not working fast enough, or we fall behind and pull back because we don't trust his best way for us. And having worked in radio for 16 years, I've interviewed all the big leaders that you know, and there's been some who've had a very public rise to fame, for lack of a better word. I hate the thought of that because I just think celebrity and Christianity don't belong in the same sentence when you think of who Jesus was, but you know what I'm talking about, people who got very no notable, and then they crashed just as publicly. And when I got the ch chance to talk with them after, asking what happened, so often they would say, I started to believe my own press, or I got so busy working for God, I forgot to walk with God. And you know, we're not what we do, we're someone he loves. And any gift from his hand pales in comparison to the treasure of knowing his heart. So walking intimately with him, treasuring his voice, enjoying fellowship, it's the most important thing about us as children of God. Amen? And the second thing is to do the next thing he tells you to, to, to cultivate a lifestyle of attentiveness to his presence and his voice. And if you do what he tells you to do today, you'll get where you need to go tomorrow. 
And the third, this is a little more difficult, and this is where some tap out, and some, it's really, this is where maturity starts to kick in, is to give them access to your inconsistencies, your fears, your hang-ups, all the things that you maybe, all the workarounds, the things you'd rather hide or not talk about, your fears, your tendency maybe to show up late because you're self-protecting, to self-sabotage when someone gets too close to you, all that stuff. But you've got to know the enemy has had a long time to study you, and he knows how to poke at you to keep you from the best of what God has for you. And God knows all about you because he created you. And he will extract that stuff from your character with the precision of a surgeon. He, he won't expose you. He's not out to destroy you. He wants to destroy all the enemy's work against you. And he's going after things in our life and our character and our stories because that's the very stuff the enemy will use against us later if we don't let him deal with it. So tonight we're going to talk about the healings and the dealings of God. But the mature Christ follower will give God access to those places to say, have your way in me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And you've got to know when God does that, he lifts you up. He doesn't beat you down. He never rolls his eyes, breathes a heavy sigh, and calls you idiot. We do that to ourselves. The enemy does that to us, but not our father. His voice is loving. Amen? Do you need more coffee? Okay, we're good. Okay, never mind. Just remember, I want you to talk back to me, okay? I never told my boys that when they were young, but I'm telling you that. You can totally talk back to me. So, okay, walk intimately with God. Do the next thing he says. Give him access to your story. And then this one, if you dare, ask him, do the impossible in and through me. Do the impossible in and through me. So as a radio host for, um, I, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time, um, but for a few years I was doing two hours a day, which is a lot because I do a lot of prep to talk to my guests. I'm mostly talking to authors. So I read about 75% of a book a day to do my daily show. So when I had two guests every day, I was reading almost 10 books a week, which is unfathomable. Now for the introvert, I love that, but that's a lot of content to absorb. And so for fun, I read fiction. Suspense Christian fiction was my favorite. And I loved it so much until my husband cut me off because uh, he said it wasn't bearing good fruit because I was growing the gift of suspicion. I was like, I'm like, I don't think there's a demon behind every bush. I think there's two demons. <laughs> I saw conspiracy everywhere. And he's like, this is not good for you. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to read Amish sci-fi or anything, you know. But uh, anyway... But I don't know. I love suspense, and I'm like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? So while I was writing the book on purpose, I was in that mode of, of absolute spiritual suspicion. And I'd read this story in the scriptures a thousand times, but this is where I was at when I was reading. But when, when the disciples who are in a boat and a storm comes, Jesus isn't with them at this point. And these, some of these are seasoned fishermen, and yet they're scared out of their mind. So you have to know that these, this was quite the storm. I want you to imagine the skies are dark, their hair is whipping in their face, the boat is taking on water, and they're screaming and they're scared. And they see a being coming across the water, and they think it's a ghost. And they're like, oh, yeah, this isn't bad enough. Now we've got some ghost coming ready to, you know, topple us over. And hasty Peter says, if it's you, Lord call me out of this boat. And I'm like, don't do it, Peter. I mean, this is the spiritual gift of suspicion. I'm like, let's go with the ghost theory. Okay, you're in this situation that you might just die, and now you see a ghost, and you're going, in the chance that it's you, call me out of this pretty certain death to a most certain death if it's not you. I mean, do you ever read the Bible that way? 
No? Okay. But anyway, I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it till you know for sure. I was so stressed out. Like, why would you do that? If they think it's a ghost, you maybe think it's a ghost. And you're saying, if it's you, call me out. I, you know, that really stressed me out. So I did a little deep dive in this story because I needed to understand how, you know, we just whip right by that. Well, one of my favorite Bible commentators is Dr. Warren Wearsby. He's with Jesus now. I love him. He came out of retirement three times to talk to me on my show. I loved him. So anyway, but what he says that Peter actually said was, Lord, bid me come. Lord, bid me come, which is a command of a king. In so many words, Peter was saying, first of all, Lord, I know what your voice sounds like. And I know you rule the wind and the waves. So if you call me out, you're going to hold me up. Well, that gave the story a whole new spin because as someone who's battled my whole life with fear, I started to learn that faith plans for the future in the face of its fears. Faith dares to say, do the impossible in and through me. I know the devil's trying to destroy me, but you want to establish me. You've not given me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and sound mind. Now, I'm going to tell some of my backstory Again, because it wasn't even in my head that we were going to see some friends this weekend, um, this is a good time for you to take a nap because you know this part of my story. So I'm here to serve. If you need a nap, take one. Uh, but I, I'm going to give a little backstory of wh where I'm coming from and why I have the fire that I do. I was raised in a large family of seven kids in a denomination where I knew God was real, but I didn't know Jesus was accessible. I didn't have the gospel presented, didn't have saving faith. But as a child, I sensed God's presence. I sensed his nearness, and I'm so grateful for that. Because we have young ears in the audience, I'm going to be as vague as I can uh, for part of this, uh, just because I want to be careful about that. But so, as a, um, so I was about nine years old. And my older brothers started to hang with some creepy friends. And uh, this was around the time my mom needed to get a job to help put food on the table for seven kids, a family of nine. And, uh, if, you know, I don't know if it's like this now, but when we were young and had brothers, they would, like, aim the BB gun at your feet and tell you to dance. And, I mean, nowadays you could probably go to jail for that. But back then it's like, dance. And I'm like, okay, how long <laughs> till mom comes home? And so, you know, I would, like, put syrup in his bath towel when he was in the shower to get him back. But brother and sister things were just, maybe these Christians don't do this stuff. I was from a non-Christian home. Great home, great family. But we just, you know, it was survival of the fittest with brothers and sisters when mom wasn't home. But anyway, when they started to hang with the yucky boys, and I was coming home from school, and I saw my brother's friend's bikes out front. I just thought I wasn't in the mood to be, have a BB gun aimed at my feet or get a knobby on my forehead. And these boys grossed me out, and I just didn't feel good around them. So I was going to go, we had a two-story house, and it kind of was like Grand Central Station with all these kids coming and going all the time. So I went down into the basement to get my favorite sweatshirt out of the dryer. I was going to go up to my bedroom and read a book until my mom got home. So I'm down in the basement, my hand's in the dryer, and I heard the door shut up to the laundry room behind me. And I turned around to see several of my brother's friends there. My brother wasn't there, and they were glaring at me. And I don't remember how I got from hands in the dryer to ankles and wrists pinned to the floor, but that's what happened. And I'll leave it at that, but you can imagine what happened. But I got up from that um, assault, um, totally confused about who I was and whose fault that was and what just happened, but it opened up a canyon of fear and insecurity. And I, it really confused me even about, um, because we had a foster home right in the back of our, our yards backed up to each other. My dad used to always say, be kind to these girls, uh, don't do what they do, 
not be kind to them because they were rough and uh, they would hang with some of my brother's creepy friends. And so I, not as much as I understood. So I, I mean, I really just in my little nine-year-old brain thought you were born one way or born the other way. You couldn't help it. So when this uh, assault happened in, on the floor in the laundry room, I was suddenly confused like, oh, should I be in that house or should I be, you know, I didn't know who I was. So I, I had a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity. I didn't tell anybody. Didn't tell anybody until I was about 18 or 19 years old. My dad was the mayor of our city and I was afraid I would bring scandal on our family, and I just, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody, but it ate me alive on the inside. I was 10 years old, walking home from school, and I saw those wretched bikes out front, and I, this just shows you how confused my brain was, but I just said, I don't care if God made me this way, those boys will never touch me again. So I was walking around the baseball diamond, and a different group of boys were hanging out in the dugout, and all I heard was, get her! And they ran out of the dugout, ran me to the ground. I was about four feet tall. They knocked me to the ground and beat me to a pulp. And they were high on something. I remember, because my adult mind, I can still see their faces. They had this crazed look and they were laughing as they kicked me in the stomach and punched me in the face and pulled fistfuls of hair out. And, uh, you know, we get so desensitized when we see that kind of stuff on TV. But I don't care who you are. If you take a fist to the face, it's traumatic. If you're a little girl being pummeled by boys twice your size, it's terrifying. And I was screaming and crying, and I had scratches on my face and a fat lip, and I'm taking these blows, and they were just laughing as they were pummeling me. And when they were done with me, they pushed off me and walked away and like, do you believe we just did that? And I got up, and my bell was absolutely rung. I was so traumatized, and I heard in my ear, I can get you anytime, anywhere, and God will never stop me. And at that moment, I knew the devil was real. And that felt true, to be honest with you. Uh, I came to Christ in uh, eighth grade. I don't have time to get into it. It's a great story, but I don't, have, I don't have time to talk about that right now. Maybe I'll slip it in somewhere else. But I fell in love with the idea of a Savior because I felt like the worst sinner of them all. And at that point, I mean, I was immersing myself in Scripture, even though um, in our particular denomination, we weren't supposed to read the Bible on our own. So I became a rebel and read the Bible under my sheet. And then to take it to a whole nother level, I was sneaking to Bible study in the next community and lying about it. And uh, my, I would like go to the library and I'd sit at the feet of this Bible study teacher and I soaked it in and I would come home and my mom was like, how's the library? And I'm like, this whole family needs the library. <laughs> the whole family <laughs> needs that library. But, um, and I'm so glad to tell you, one by one by one, almost everybody in my family saved now. Praise God for that. Um, but so I fell in love with Jesus, with his word, and it would be years. I knew I was saved, but it would be years before I knew I was loved. And I want to just say, I think many Christians, even seasoned Christians, are walking through life. They know they're saved, but they don't always know they're loved. And it's love that heals us. It's love that empowers us. It's love that changes everything. We jump ahead, young uh, 20-something, met my husband. We got married. Uh, surprise, we got pregnant on our honeymoon. We were going to wait five years. And, um, and I'm so insecure, and I'm so new to the faith. And I met a lot of judgmental, legalistic Christians. So I'm trying to tell people, we waited. You know, like young people, never mind about that. Anyway, I'm just, and he's like, I don't care what people think. We got pregnant on our honeymoon. We're having a baby. My hubby's just so secure. He does not care what people think. And I'm like, but anyway, our due date is this. And if you put, do the math, it's nine months. I just promise you. And I was so insecure about that. But the Lord allowed that because found out during my pregnancy that I had something called endometriosis. And I would need a full hysterectomy in my 20s. So we had to have three babies quick, uh, and then I had a hysterectomy. So our middle pregnancy, I was on bed rest for three months. Um, and then my third pregnancy, I went to bed 
at three months along, had six months left to go, and I had a one and a three-year-old, so that was high-risk pregnancies with a lot of contractions. And one of our children was a strong-willed child. That was Luke. So Jake was compliant. Luke was a handful. And so people would say, I'll watch Jake. Good luck with Luke. You know, and we had six months of that. So you have to remember, I had a passion for Jesus, but I went into, I mean, as a young Christian, I was serving on five committees. I was doing everything at church. Part of that was because I was digging myself out of an identity hole. Because if you don't know who you are, you will misuse your time, treasure, and talents to prove something Jesus has already proven. I didn't know who I was. I knew I was saved. I didn't know I was loved. So I was using all my gifts or whatever, but to dig myself out of a hole that I believed I was in. So to go to bed rest and call in every fan favor for six months was a nightmare come true because my friends got tired of me. I got tired of me. It confronted all of my worst insecurities because I was a debt to society. I, I hated it. It was so painful to see my friends sort of kind of go away after a while, and I'm like, where are you? And it felt like God had lost my address you know, I was reading scripture. It was dead on the page. I was new enough in the faith. I did not know what was going on with me. Three months into the pregnancy, I was six months along. I hadn't contracted in a couple of days. And my doctors could tell that I was getting pretty down. And he said, how about you get up and let's test the waters. So it was a fall day. I met my two old college roommates in Stillwater. Went for a walk. I was very careful. By nighttime, I was contracting again. And within two weeks of that outing, I was on my bed rest, drinking my water, and a friend came to visit. She said, hey, where's your water bottle? And I said, over there. And I pointed, and pins and needles shot out my arm. And I'm listening to her talk, but I'm like, what, what was that? And all of a sudden, this buzzing, pulsating thing started at the base of my skull and came around to the front of my face. And I felt buzzing, pulsating, numbing on my face. And I'm listening to her. My vision started to blur, and the moves, room started to move. And I'm like, what's happening here? Um, and it continued. The neurological fireworks continued for the next few weeks. And I had a friend at that time who was one that admitted later she was just getting tired of me. I was getting tired of me. But she was saying kind of jabbing things. And so when I said to her, um, I'm having, my face is going numb and the room is spinning and my arms are going numb and what could this be? And she goes, now this? First it's bed rest, now this? She goes, you know it's personalities like you that most often get MS? And what, well, I mean, I didn't know what to do with that, but it was like a spirit of fear entered me like you can't believe. I, we have a young gal at our church at that time who was an athlete like I was, and she spiraled down so fast with MS, so all of a sudden to have her put that picture in my mind with such similar symptoms was absolutely terrifying to me. Well, she left. I had three months left to go on this bed rest. And again, it, there, there's so many miracles in the story, but I will say um, it would be a year later that I found out that my one day up, a deer tick latched on, gave me Lyme disease, exited, I never saw it, um, and to this day I deal with some chronic Lyme issues, but it was severe and it was terrible and I wanted to die, to be honest, it was really, really hard. And when the worst of it came up and I found out what had happened, I heard again, uh, I can get you anytime, anywhere, and God will never stop me. As the disease progressed, as a young mom, my short-term memory went, my strength went. I was a fitness instructor. I taught aerobic classes and things like that. And I got to the point where I was showering once a week just to get through the, just that's all I had the strength for. And it, since most of my friends went away, I was parenting three little boys from the floor. And I would just lie on the floor and they'd crawl all over me and I'd pray and pray and pray for them. Lord God, raise them up in spite of me. You know, um, I, I had all this passion when I came into marriage. And at this point, I was just praying I'd live long enough to see these boys grow up. 
And the short-term memory thing, to be so young and have my brain fail me the way it was, was so terrifying. And so I had no more vision for my life, no more sense of purpose. And in the middle of that mess, I knew some women were gossiping about me. And I will tell you, so my youngest son, I was bit during the pregnancy, he's 32. That was 32 years ago. They didn't know a lot about Lyme back then. And so it can make you look and feel like a hypochondriac because of the way the bacteria goes through your body. And so I had people gossiping, and I knew that. And I had others praying, and I knew that. I'm lying on the floor one day with my boys, and a woman called from church, and she's a godly woman, and she said, Susie, I've heard the chatter, and I knew exactly what she was talking about. She said, I've taken your case before Almighty God. Now listen to me, she said. The Lord showed me a platform that he's building with your pain that you will speak from someday. So you lean in and learn everything you can because you will have a story to tell. And I knew it was true. It was like a truth bomb dropped into my spirit. I knew it was true. And things got worse before they got better, but it didn't matter. Truth sets us free. The truth got in there. And I will tell you, prior to that day, every morning, because I had so much facial numbing, especially on this side, doctors always said, don't be surprised if you wake up with facial paralysis someday. So every morning I would say, is this the day my face is going to fall? It was terrifying. After that, the Lord confronted me because we, we came into our marriage. We, did, you know, for, we were young people, but we did okay financially, had good credit, and our finances were turned upside down because of this medical debt. So we had more medical bills than we had income. And so I really, our friends had health, our friends had wealth, and we had neither, and really truly felt like have-nots. Like I really like, that's what it felt like to me. And so to have so many medical bills and callers, bill collectors going, you, can, you have to pay more than $5 a month on this account. It was just a land that was dry and weary for us. But after that phone call and that truth bomb came in, the Lord just confronted me and said, Susie, are you a believer only because you've secured your eternity? Or do you actually believe this stuff in my word? Like, when are you going to shift your weight onto the promises to see if they hold? Because every time you behold fear, you're turning your back on faith. So where is your gaze? Where is your focus? Test my promises and see. And I honestly, this was all new territory for me, but I suddenly had to go, you know what? Every morning after that, I'd wake up, look in the mirror, put my hand on my numb face and say, you will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. I would hold up my empty checkbook and say, my God will supply all of my needs according to his riches, not mine. I started to cultivate an intimacy with God and stand on his promises even when they didn't feel true because I decided they were true. And the more I pursued intimacy with God, the more I started to see and envision the purposes of God. Ephesians 3.12 says, Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now boldly come confidently into his presence. Dreams are conceived in intimacy with God, and they're achieved through intimacy with God. And so often we, we get this ambition that we want to make a name for ourselves or we want to do something great. But you know what? Jesus did respond to faith. He loves our faith. But when the, deem, when, the, when the disciples came back and said, even the demons obey us, because God responded to faith, Jesus so often in the Gospels, he marveled at unbelief and he marveled at faith. When the disciples came back and said, Lord, even the demons obey us, I thought Jesus would say, yeah, I told you this faith stuff works. But he didn't. He says, don't marvel that the demons obey you. Like, I already told you that was true. Marvel that your name is written in the book of life. In other words, if the wonder of what you get to do upstages what he's already done, you've already lost your way. Because the most expensive miracle, the most amazing thing, is your name is written in the book of life. That your, your sins cannot be counted against you. 
that there's no condemnation over you, that you have access to the inner throne room of Almighty God. You've got the presence of God in you and all around you and the promises of God written over you. Everywhere you put your feet, his kingdom comes to earth. You are now an ambassador, a kingdom person. Isn't that amazing? When you pray, imagine God pointing and assigning and mobilizing angels on your behalf. You're one of the most blessed of all creation. But we forget that. We forget who we are and whose we are in the midst of busyness and the batterings of life. In one of my old uh, devotional streams in the desert, it says, earnestly desire to get alone with God. If we neglect to do so, we not only rob ourselves of a blessing, but we rob others as well, since we have no blessing to pass on to them. It may mean that we do less visible work, but the work we do will have more depth and power. Another wonderful result will be that nobody will see Jesus. Nobody will see anything but Jesus in our lives. I've noticed these phases as I've studied purpose, and I have for years, I'm so fascinated by it. I think partly is because of the way that I came to faith and the battles that I've had to fight early on in faith and the reality that I'm going to give an account for my life as a believer. How did I steward my time, treasured talents? Unbelievers will go before the great white throne of judgment and give account for their sins. We go before the mercy seat and give an account for our lives. And one of the things that gets me out of bed every day is to get as many people ready to meet Jesus. If you're lost, I want you found. If you're sick, I want you healed. If you're broken, I want you whole. And I want the righteous mobilized so that we're stewarding every moment to give the Lord an offering of our lives. He's worth it. And I've noticed as people have taken that seriously, there's three phases that we all go through. And not just once, but many times throughout life. So if we're all on board, let's just say we have 100% participation. Let's just pretend that we all 100% agree there's a next place of promise for me. These are the phases that I've identified as I've interviewed so many people over the years and studied this and studied scripture and walked it out myself. The first one is a dream far off. And that's when your motivations are revealed. So suddenly you get a dream in your heart and you get a sense that God has a purpose for me and it's far off and you get excited and it's in between. All of a sudden it feels like things stall out. Like first God gives you confirmation, you're really going, you're moving and all of a sudden, boom, it all stalls out. And then you start to see other people who are further down the road than you and the temptation is to compare and despair, to get jealous, to pick apart the people who are further down the road because you feel maybe more qualified. Now I will say... Gifting may open the door, but character keeps it open. And at times, I think we've celebrated gifting at the expense of character to our detriment. But he makes you wait because he's making you ready. The preparation process is so extremely important. And what happens in this time in between when you got the dream far off, all of a sudden pettiness, jealousy, insecurity, comparison, pride, that stuff surfaces, and the enemy wastes no time to come in and accuse and condemn. He seduces, then he accuses, right? And he'll say, see, this disqualifies you. The fact that you have those thoughts and feelings, that disqualifies you. No, it doesn't. We're all a pile of contradictions, every one of us. We're grateful, grumpy. We're selfish, selfless. And what's amazing and scandalous is that we get to be a work in progress without the condemnation. Right? Isn't that good news? So when that dream is far off and your junk starts to show, just know that God is in the process of preparing you and extracting that stuff from your character so that when you get to that next place of promise, you can win your battles there, you can triumph there, and then move on from there. This time in between is extremely important. The second phase, if you stay humble and you stay teachable no matter what your age is and you trust God, you will move to that next place of promise. You will. And then suddenly, where before you're like, God, I'm ready. What are you waiting for? And he's like, you're not quite ready yet. 
And sometimes it's not even about you. He's getting situations and other people ready for that place. But we think, I'm ready. He's like, no, you're not. But you stay humble and teachable. Pretty soon your toes will touch the edges of that grass. And suddenly it's the dream up close. And that's where your fears are confronted. Where before you're like, I'm ready. And he's like, no, you're not. Here you face the giants and you think, oh, I could mess this up. I'm not ready. I was just kidding about that whole purpose thing. <laughs> I'm going to go back and do this other thing. That... And he's like, no, actually, now you're ready. This is so predictable, so constant, always. When God is about to do a new thing, the devil brings up an old thing, right? He wants to get you looking back when you need to be looking up. This time, when you start to face your giants, this is where God says, I'm going to help you, and those giants are going down. And if you keep per per uh, persevering, and keep walking with God, staying humble and teachable, you come into that place of a dream realized where your faith is strengthened. And in fitness, you don't just go from couch to marathon overnight. You gradually work up, so you increase your threshold of fitness and flexibility and strength in the same exact way it works in the spiritual realm. He trains our hands for battle. He strengthens our arms to bend a bow of bronze. He allows us to carry certain burdens and teaches us to walk on high places. We get spiritual agility through the stuff that we go through, and he's always training us so that we can stand with him and go to the next place he has for us. Amen? So I'm going to jump ahead in my notes here because I want to respect our time here. I want to talk about common training grounds for the person who's in preparation. And the thing is, these are so important because if we misinterpret our battles, we'll get offended with God and then put ourselves back under the discipline of God. But if we can rightly frame our trials and really discern that he makes us wait because he's making us ready, he allows these obstacles and this opposition to train us so that we can stand on high places. We can bend a bow of bronze. And this is so important. If you understand as you walk through these battles, I'm deeply loved. I'm profoundly called. I'm empowered and I'm equipped. And nobody can gossip to God about me enough to make him change his mind about me. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow morning. Your status, your identity is so solid, more solid and secure than you can imagine. Common training grounds. The first one is betrayal. Every single person I have ever interviewed, which is a lot over 16 years, has been through betrayal. I can't imagine that there's not a person in this room that you've not been stabbed in the back at least once. And it is a test of our character. It's painful. Jesus was betrayed. So the question is, will you bless or will you curse? Will you return the favor or will you process your wounds in a Christ-like way? Number two, and this is 100% of the time, financial hardship. When you walk through financial difficult times, the temptation is to take things, matters into your own hand, go get a third job and start striving and throw your life all out of balance even if God didn't ask you to. Now, if he asked you to, that's one thing. But we get into striving so fast when we don't trust God. But financial hardship is a real test of our character and our faith. Where does your help come from? Who is your provider? If you go through an unsettling time, if you are frame it to say, I walk with you, God. You're my father. You will supply all my needs. So what does faith look like here? What does obedience look like here? It's a test of your readiness, how you steward this trial. Rejection or the sense of being overlooked. This is a very common one where God has anointed you, he's appointed you, he's gifted you, and you're in a season of not yet. And it seems like everybody else is living their best life. That's such a hard time. And I would just say, just because you're in a not yet doesn't mean you're a have not. Super important for you to know that. But let's just say God's confirmed the gifting, you've got a vision, the doors haven't opened yet, and all the right people are looking the wrong way. 
Like nobody's noticing that would have maybe a capacity to open a door for you. And the temptation is to go, do you see me? You know, I, I'm a thing. I, I got this thing. And I, you know, but the, the call then is to say, God, you see me. I see you. And one day you'll establish me. And I'm just telling you, you stay humble and teachable. No demon in hell can keep you from your purpose. When the time is right, he will establish you. He's well able to do that. Another training ground, very common, a disillusionment with a church or a ministry. Now, I will tell you, there are good leaders who have, are privy to information that we don't all have and have to make hard decisions that sometimes looks like bad decisions. But they're also bad leaders. Anne Graham Lotz has joined me on my show a good handful of times, and she actually has a book. I, can't, I think the title is Wounded by God's People, something like that. But she and her husband went through a church hurt with the leaders. And I know this is wrong thinking, but I just kept thinking to myself, to the, I'm thinking, having an imaginary conversation with those church leaders. You do know this is Billy Graham's daughter, right? Aren't you afraid to get struck by lightning or something? But uh, they, they were absolutely devastated by church leaders. And I know people that have been hurt by insecure or narcissistic leaders. They exist. They do. And that's hard. And that's painful. However, if God allows it, he'll redeem it. So how will you wrestle through it? Will you step aside and paint with a broad stroke and write the whole ministry or the whole church off as if the whole thing stinks? Or will you know and assume that there are intercessors on the inside who see what you see and are hoping you'll wrestle with honor? Because it's a real test of your maturity, how you handle this. And I'm not saying cover up, but I'm saying walk in the fear of God. Talk to the right people and walk in holiness because it's a test of your maturity. That's a hard one, but it's right and it's real. Another one I touched on this is past baggage. When God is about to do a new thing, the devil will bring up an old thing. Because he wants you looking back when you need to be looking up. It used to be when the enemy would bring up this old stuff, I'd instantly go to that place of fear and insecurity. But now I know God well enough and I know the enemy's tactics well enough that when the old stuff starts coming up, I get excited. God, where are we going? Because he's bugging me. So you must have something new going on here. And I get excited. And finally, and this isn't a conclusive list. These are just the common ones. And this is one I failed miserably, but God still met me and taught me. Someone else's blessing. The blessing of others constantly will test our hearts. So we, in our first seven years of marriage, was probably when the worst part of the disease was for me. And then I went about 20 years with kind of cyclical, chronic health issues, but I still taught fitness classes and fought hard. I'd say four or five times a year I couldn't get out of bed for a few days, so every other month. But otherwise, I'd get up and I could do life. And then eight years ago, I had a massive relapse, which I'll talk about tomorrow night, that um, God used really to deliver me from fear in a big way, but it was terrible and painful. So in the first seven years, we lived in this little house. We were growing broke. My hubby was working his tail off, and uh, he had this offer to go to Colorado to open a branch office, and they would give us a $10,000 raise. And even though our whole family, we both have big family support system is here, I felt like I needed a change of scenery because all I'd seen that house was from the, from the couch, from the bed rest and then from sickness, IV therapies and all that from that couch. And the thought of a $10,000 raise um, seemed like maybe that's the ticket to getting us out of this medical mess, medical debt mess. And so we went. And my husband was working 15, 17 hours a day, long, long, long days. And within, I don't know, two, three months, they took the raise away because they said, ooh, we bit off more than we could chew, can't afford it. So they took the raise away and we're out away from our family and kept working these long days. And so we were very displaced and we'd sold our house. 
So we lasted a year and then came home, but we didn't have the money to buy a home. We weren't in a shape to do that yet, so we rented this little home. Now, I, I want to tell you, I, what I didn't know as I tell you this story, when I was in this story, I, had, I was depressed. I, that was diagnosed after, but I went through a year of depression because of, my counselor said it was a, just a series of unresolved losses and heartbreak. And so walking into this part of the story, I had that lead blanket, you know, that, that I don't know if anybody's ever been depressed, but I just, the joy was out and I was just surviving. And so I don't want to sound ungrateful because we did find a home to rent, but it, the house, it was a little split entry and the outside and the inside and the carpet and the walls were all the same color. And it was the color of pee. So I called it a pee house. Everywhere I looked, P, P, O, P, of course, P, like this is my life, just P, you know. That's what it felt like. No color, no excitement, just P, right? And so we lived in, it was just this little tiny thing. And again, my friends were on their second home and all these vacations and additions. And I'm sorry, I was so happy for them, but I was sad for me because the contrast of our lives was so stark. And around that time, a, a friend told me, I've got a mutual friend that you've got to meet. She's got three boys just like you, and she has a little daughter. And right there, that pinged me because I always wanted a daughter to follow the three boys, but we had a hysterectomy. But, uh, you know, I was, I was just going through life. I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, I'll meet your friend. And so she gave me uh, her number and her address, and we uh, arranged for a play date because our boys were very similar in age. Well, I pull out of the driveway. I cross over this busy road, and she literally was a minute and a half or two. Suddenly, I cross the road into their neighborhood, and it's rolling hills. It's like you hear the hallelujah chorus. I mean, I had like a, a little stick tree in our little postage stamp yard. We drive over across the busy highway. And, hallelujah. I mean, it's like we're blessed. I mean, that these Victorian spreads, you could smell their scented candles from the street. And I'm like, those are seven bucks a piece. And they got one in every window. I mean, I just like, how is this world here just two minutes from where I live? I couldn't believe it. And she was the sweetest thing in the world, ever sweetest thing. So I want to tell you, as I'm describing this scenario, my misery was my problem. She's the cutest, sweetest thing ever. But she opened the door, and her husband was working in his office in his shorts and T-shirt. And she said so sweetly, she said, oh, he makes six figures and works half days, and we spend the rest of the time doing ministry. And in my head, I saw her leg go up. We spend the rest of our time doing ministry. I'm like... Oh, that's awesome, because Kev was working three jobs, and I never saw him, and I lived, you know, where I lived. Anyway, so I'm like, yay, and uh, so then we go in and meet the boys, and they're similar ages, similar names, and they just loved each other, and you know, in Minnesota, with sledding hills, you've got to drive to a sledding hill, stand in the freezing cold until one of your kids draws blood, and then you take them back home, at least with boys, anyway, uh, but she, when they moved in, found a sledding hill right out her back window. So she could be in the warmth of her house doing dishes while those boys just killed themselves out on that hill. And it's like, wow, I mean, just things just worked out. Do you ever, anybody ever had someone like that in your life where things just work out for them? And she's the sweetest thing, but I'm like, eh, okay. Anyway, we, and I loved her, but I just, it just, you know, added gasoline to the fire of my misery, to be honest with you, but I loved time with her. But it, it just reiterated the state of our lives. And uh, one night, she wanted to have a sledding party with and some other friends. And, and I've got to tell you, so Jake and Jordan, my oldest and youngest, were compliant. So if you were coming over to hang out, they'd be like, whatever, you know, okay. And Lukey, my strong-willed middle child, would be like, when are they going to get here? When are they going to get here? When are they going to But you'd come in the door, and he'd accidentally throw the fire truck at you in his excitement. I mean, he'd just, Wah! you know, he just, like, would have these outbursts, and then he'd go put himself in the corner because... He, he needed to do that. So that's that kid, you know. So we're, we pull up to my friend's house, 
And Luki is beside himself for the sledding hill. He cannot even stand it. He's so excited. And we're traipsing up. And of course, you know, I see all the candles and the windows and the frilly. And I'm traipsing up on the snow. And all of a sudden, I hear Luki, Mommy, watch out! And I turn around. And in his excitement, he threw a snowball, but it was an ice ball. And it pegged me in the temple super hard. And I went to my knees. And all the sadness of eight years came out in guttural sobs on my perfect friend's front lawn. I'm in the snow going, <laughs> and I mean, this is before ugly cry was a thing. I invented it. I'm like, guttural, guttural, like all the sadness, all the accumulation of loss, heartbreak, where are you, God? Out on her front yard, and I'm sobbing like I can't get control of it. And Lukey comes over with this little snow mittens. Mommy, I'm so sorry. I'm like, it's not your fault. And I'm just, you know, doing everything I can as my boys are all waiting for their mom to get a grip, you know, and I'm just sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And so finally, I kind of tried to pull it together, and I feel the egg, goose egg, forming on my head. And those of you, well, you know, you live here. If your nose runs long enough, it can freeze into icicles right on your face. So, um, which, you know, only thing I was missing was like a hump on my back, because I'm just like, got a hump here, got the stuff going on here. And when you cry that hard, there's aftershock. I don't know if you know this, but you can settle down. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you, it's involuntary. I don't know. It's a nervous system thing or something. But I'm, I'm doing the aftershock thing. So I'm, I'm like, I'm ready. I'm ready. So we get to, we get to the front door. And, I'm, and then my friend, who's the sweetest, most compassionate thing in the world, she would have just hugged me. She didn't answer the door. Her perfect friend from next door answers the door. So she opens the door, she's beautiful and perfect, and she's like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I live in that other perfect house right next door, and I'm doing aftershock thing with the goose egg in my nose, and I'm like, I'm Susie, and I live in the, in the pea house across the way. Nice to meet you. And she's like, okay, not sure why you're invited, but okay, come on in. And our boys had the best time. I went and hid in the bathroom and, uh, you know, blew my nose in there, and... Uh, had a perfectly miserable time, because I'm an introvert anyway, so I didn't know any of these people, and I just had guttural sobs out in the front yard. So once our kids were done, and my hubby could rescue me and take me home to our little place, we tucked our boys in bed, and we sat in the dark on the couch, and I put my head on his shoulder, and he scooped up my hand, and we almost instinctively prayed the prayer from Habakkuk, like it just started to come out. And uh, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And as we prayed that, something crescendoed up in my spirit. And the Lord said, Susie, I will restore the years the locust has eaten. But you cannot think health and wealth, popularity, acceptance are automatics with the Christian life. Because if you think you're entitled to these things, you are going to be tempted by these things. I am enough for you. Let me be enough for you now. And let me use you in this place. And I will redeem and restore what's lost. Our hope is not in financial provision or that all the popular people get who we are or the right people looking the right way at the right time. Our hope is not in status at church or in a ministry. Our hope is in the living Lord Jesus who daily establishes his purposes for us. And you will have seasons where you're known and seasons where you're unknown. Remember what Paul said? We're known, but we're treated as unknown. You know, we're slandered. We go without sleep. 
And I think in some ways, a message of, of purpose even has infiltrated the American church that's not exactly right. Because with it comes suffering and battering. Because you become a Christian, you've got a target on your back. But overwhelming victory belongs to us because we belong to Jesus. And we are going to face Jesus someday. We're going to give an account for our lives. And self-preservation because we don't want them to get mad or because we don't want them to criticize us or whatever. That's a fear of man. The fear of God brings freedom. The fear of man is a snare. I was the most insecure, most fearful person I knew. But then I got a, an encounter with God and his love. And I know nobody can hold a candle to who he is to me. I don't care what people think about how I chase after him because I'll be standing before him on my own. My, critic, my critics won't be in the room with me. I want my whole life to be an offering to him. Don't you? This is what Eric Ludy writes. There's absolutely no excuse to stay where you are right now. If you're weak, he can make you strong. If you are timid, he can make you brave. If you are a pervert, he can make you pure. If you are selfish, he can make you selfless. If you are a shepherd, he can make you a king. If you are mediocre, he can make you a mighty one of valor. Jesus doesn't need men and women who merely esteem him as great, but believers who are willing to be made great by his life. Can I invite Bridget and the team up?